Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. 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 This is part two of our interview with Scott Billings. Now, in this episode, we go deep into the esoteric concepts that Scott has been researching and exploring throughout his life. Uh, so this one has a much stronger focus on philosophy and frameworks for understanding reality. Scott trained as a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, completing his formal education at Victoria University and abroad in Taiwan. Scott majored in acupuncture, massage and Chinese diet therapy. He went on to do a five-year apprenticeship under a Japanese acupuncture specialist and has since completed postgrad studies in Minaka, Toyohari and Kiko Japanese acupuncture styles. Scott is a qualified academic practitioner of the Australian branch of the Toyohari Association and past academic dean of the Melbourne branch for many years. He was a senior lecturer at the Australian Shiatsu College for 13 years, teaching pulse and tongue diagnostic techniques, moxa and cupping, as well as TCM theory. During the recording, my next door neighbor started to mow his lawn, and what I've done is I've cut that section out and I've put it at the end. So the majority of the episode is quite a clear recording, and if you're really enjoying it, you can listen to the part with the mower in the background at the end of the episode. One final note on the audio, there were a few power surges during the recording, so you will hear a fuzzy, crackling sound that lasts for around 5 seconds. This happens a few times during the interview, so if you do notice a change in quality, rest assured the audio will regain itself without you needing to adjust your audio player. We are also joined once again by our wonderful co-host, Mr. Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew Yoga class that he teaches, and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, the music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release, and if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. My main dilemma, I guess, I've had in life is that there's so many directions that I want to travel in. Uh, and so like just yesterday, I, I was listening to my new favorite rapper and he's incredible and I haven't been writing much for the last like year or so. And I was sitting with this sensation where I'm like, I, I'm finding it difficult to enjoy this because I want to be doing this. Or this is sort of highlighting something that, that I, yeah, that I'm not developing and I'm not addressing. Uh, but there's so many things to do. And, and right now I'm, you know, I'm working a lot. I'm saving to go away. You know, there's, there's really great justifications for why I'm not spending a lot of time writing. Um, and so I was really trying to figure out whether or not that feeling was, was something that I really needed to address straight away and that all the things that I was going to be doing for this rest of this day, you know, I'll just drop a bit of that and spend an hour writing, which I'm sure I could have done, you know, I'm sure I could have found some time. And I was looking at it positively thinking, oh, this, maybe this is a cool, a driving feeling, you know, this is going to motivate me to be creative and, and explore these things. And then the other thought was, this is, why? Like, where is this coming from? Why, why do I need to 
to do this, to enjoy this thing? You know, can I not enjoy this thing even if I never write another song in my life? Like, what, what's my attachment to to being this this artist, this writer, this kind of thing? Can I let go of that desire to to have that experience or to express myself in that way? Yeah, it makes me think a lot about discernment, uh, which is something that's been coming up a lot over the last few years for me. So when I first got into esoteric and spiritual concepts, I had this tendency, and I still kind of do have a tendency to accept people's realities. So if somebody is psychic, for example, or they have some kind of energetic ability that they believe they have, or a framework that they have, I'll kind of go with that. And that was fine, but it kind of, it, it gets really confusing. And also, it also creates these sort of elements where everything has meaning, but how much of this is a projected meaning from my own mind. And so eventually I sort of got to a point over the last few years where I, I kind of just dropped a lot and got really physical again. And just sort of, my treatments were getting really physical again. And a lot of my life was kind of just not really considering those other things so much and just not trying not to be afraid of them, I guess. But now I'm coming back around and trying to understand. I remember we were having a conversation about like astral travel and things like this, um, about how you discern what's a mental projection and what's what's actual perception. So yeah, I'd be interested if you talk about that a little bit and also maybe even bring it out a bit further into these other kind of uh, in, intuitive feelings about ourselves. Well, there's a lot of questions in there that you had, but I think the... Um Following on in terms of the direction of the conversation we've been having, uh, I always have the feeling in myself that you know it's it's a long life, and there's everything has its time. You know, everything has its season, and there's certain times that we have to cultivate or spend time on certain things, and there's times for other things. And so to have a, I think. A patience and an understanding that we there's certain periods of our life where we have to devote and spend time on certain things and then we'll come back to other things when the timing is right and appropriate and and that that's that's a necessary and, and fine way to go about things um also i think you know one thing you touched on in terms of discernment is i think re- relates to a capacity to perceive what our motivation is for things mm. And I think that's something that's really personal in as much as um, often we can do things to avoid other things and often we can do things with subconscious drives that we don't really understand that can lead us in a direction that we don't necessarily need or want to go in Mm -hmm. and to try and understand the motivation for that. And that's something that's personal. You know, each of us can only have a level of discernment or self-observation or self-knowledge that can enable that. But ultimately you know at a much bigger or broader level um it it comes back to what we think our life is for and most people don't really have a sense of where their life is going life life just happens and whilst that might seem like a really you know free way to live you know life just happens there is a purpose to life. There is a direction to life. And there is a, a there is a, a direction to our life. You know, again, if coming back to this idea of multiple existences and uh, the, the fact or the reality of aspects of ourselves that do exist that we are unable to contact, 
but that if we do provide us with immense insight and wisdom and compassion and knowledge and love beyond what life can provide us in the external world that most people seek or chase after you know to see what where is our life going and what what are we trying to achieve with our life itself and again coming back to this trying to get in touch with this this sense of who we are event you know essentially that really gives us a sense of vocation a sense of purpose and meaning and direction that you know we we have a, an understanding of who we are and what we're doing and why we're here and and what we can do and what we can achieve not that we know the outcome but that we can head in a particular direction and most people just live life you know there's a there's a sort of a general program that's given when we're in primary school that you grow up you go through school you go to university you get a job you get married you have some kids you might get divorced you'll go through some rough spots you'll retire you'll do a bit of travel look after the grandkids and then you're dead that's a basic outline or map of life and most people adhere to it because it's only seen within the context of you know one existence and what's achievable in a life and you know that's not not to sound condescending i mean people have a lot more insight into life than that but mm. um but to see that you know there is there is a purpose to life and and we can to the, to the degree that we're able um have some influence on the direction that we take our life and to see you know what what do we want our, our life to be like when we look back on our deathbed and see what our life was, you know, have, have, we, have we really done what we could have done? And not, not, not in a sense of regret or, or foreboding, but just to think, you know, we, we really lived. And the opportunities that arose, we embraced. And the obstacles that we, that we faced, we, that, that came to us, we faced and, and, you know, extracted the best from. And so then, you know, for me... Um, life then just becomes a, a joy whatever arises uh it just it's just a means to further or more deeply understand myself and to uncover things about myself that i didn't know that existed and to share things with people that i didn't think i would be able to share and um yeah it, it certainly gives life a lot more meaning and then we see that within that you know within the twists and turns of our life itself there's there's times for, for everything. There's, you know, we feel and know that, you know, you have these certain skills. So writing is, 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 is a part of something that you can do. And it's a means of expression for something, uh, for, you know, for, for the way that you experience the world. Um, the amount of time you spend to that or give to that perhaps is um, just one means of expression. You know, really writing is, is a means of expression of, what you're experiencing and interpreting your current perspective of life in mm. but you do that in other ways mm. you know whether it's shiatsu whether it's music whether it's you know this sort of medium you're interacting with people and the same thread is still running through your life mm. um you know writing is just one means of expression of that to, to you inherently as a person you know just from from what i've seen of you and, and know of you you know there is that really inquisitive side and there is that real want to just express um, your understanding of things and you do that in it seems in everything that you do your music and your insights and your your, your treatments and so you know at sometimes it'll be this and sometimes it'll be that but who you are as a person is still is still that
cool. <laughs> that does make things, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, thank you. That was very cool. And uh, you should just package the last five minutes up and uh, write it down. That was very, very well expressed. Love it. I, I was just, I was just <laughs> sitting there and just taking it in, and I was thinking that's it's fantastic. It was really well, really clear, and um, slightly blew me away. It was well, well, well put. But I think within that we can develop, you know, the sensitivity when we are heading in the wrong direction, or if we're wasting our time, or you know, if we're doing things that really, um, you know, there's things that we have to do that we feel. Um, our duty, our dharma. Yeah, we have we have duty, things that we have to do, but you know we should do them in a way that that supports us and and, and becomes a means of um, allowing us as an individual to express ourselves within that duty, not that we just do it as an obligation. Hmm. Um, and then there's things that we just shouldn't do. And you know I see that in myself. Sometimes I'll do things that I shouldn't do, and I'm doing them because. You know, I want to please someone, or I want to be looked upon well, or, mm. um, or I'm doing something, or not doing something because I'm, you know, a bit timid, or I'm a bit shy, or I'm a bit insecure, or, you know. So life then is just about that, and we can see, whatever setting we're in, you know, we can learn something about ourselves, and the more that we can uh, break down those contradictions and those obstructions to just the expression of who we are. Um, you know, it, it it allows a deep and real sense of just peace, because we're just we're just who we are. Mm. You know, we're not that we don't have those all those inner contradictions and um, you know, blockages that just cause us just pain and suffering and separate us from people and create um, disharmony in relationships and um, make us miss opportunities and uh, or you know, force things on, on situations that just shouldn't be forced. And, you know, life, you know, that's sort of, it's a lot broader in that sense. But, um, yeah, when we have that, that perspective on life and we, we live from that perspective, then, you know, we, we more and more find find harmony. Can I um, bring it back to uh, one other part of what I was saying before? In terms of uh, an astral body, how does that relate to the causal body or this primordial Shen? Where does that sit in this picture? Um, because I imagine, like, from my uh, understanding, we have this physical plane and, and there's uh, some kind of... There's other realms that seem to sit in parallel with and some of them, I guess, sit more closely and, and, and relate more directly to this physical realm. Um, yeah, do you... How do you understand that kind of thing? In terms of, um, you know, different dimensions or planes of existence, obviously we have this physical plane, which is, you know, comprised the, the third dimension, so length, width, and height. Beyond that, there's just different, um, different levels of vibration or existence. So we have a physical body, and to try and understand it is to differentiate it in and of itself. So... The physical body is just matter, um, inanimate matter, and something animates it, something gives it vitality and vibrancy. And so, you know, for us as practitioners, it is that 
we see the distortion or the imbalance in the physical form because of the disruption of circulation in the energetic flow. Mm. So we have a physical form, which is just matter, which is innervated by a vital substance, which is the vital body, which creates, you know, when someone dies, that vital body leaves the physical body. Mm. And so they're just matter. Mm. And we see inanimate objects like um, tables and so on, which have, they, they still have a vital aspect to them, but it's a lot denser than a physical body because of the other things that exist within it. But so we have a physical body, we have this vitalizing form, and then we know that as human beings we have, you know, emotions, and the emotions are related to the astral body. And we also have a mental body, which was relating to our thinking and our psychology and the conditioning and so on of that. And all of these things are then uh, superseded upon that which perceives everything that occurs, which is our consciousness. And so as we are in this physical, in the present moment here, we have our physical body, we have our vital body, we have our emotions, our mind, and we have our consciousness, which perceives that which is occurring. And so when we're awake in, in the waking state, as it's described, all of these things are integrated within us, but they exist at different levels of vibrations. So we all have emotions. Unless we have some psychic capacity, we can't see them, similarly with thoughts, but they exist. You know, science can, not so much emotions, but they can detect and differentiate uh, different brainwave patterns that indicate that there's different levels of conscious functioning between sleep and waking and so on. And the degree of acuity between in the waking state indicates that someone is thinking or ruminating or has certain, you know, certain psychological state. And because we just see that as a physical person, we, 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 we don't really differentiate it. But that exists, you know, those brainwaves exist at a certain level of vibration and so we can exist in that dimension we can exist in that that plane or that dimension of thought and we can exist in that plane or that dimension of of emotion or that vibratory level which is described as the astral plane mm. and so I mean, this is one way, you know, there's different ways to describe it. But for me, you know, when we say astral travel or if we go into the mental plane or if we achieve meditation, we're just existing at different levels of, of conscious existence. Mm. And so with astral travel, for example, um, when we sleep, the physical body goes to sleep. Mm -hmm. The vital body slightly dislocates or separates from the physical body so that it can reorganize the energetic circulation and provide for health. And then the consciousness and... The psychology, which is our thoughts and emotions, separates from the physical body. So can you just clarify that? So you're saying the, the vital body leaves so that the physical body is free to reorganize? Not, not so much free to reorganize. So through the day, our body absorbs vital currents, mostly from the sun, but also from the air and food that we breathe. Yep. And then at nighttime when we sleep, the... um. You know, our, our psychology and our consciousness is out, outside of the physical body. Mm. And so the physical form, this is why it's just mostly just inert and just laying there sleeping. And then the vital body slightly dissociates from the physical form and repairs the physical body. So all of the energy that's been accumulated through the day uh, within the vital body is then used to repair the body. Mm. And then the, um, the consciousness, the personality, the, the egos our psychology, we exist in that dimension, mm. um, which we call the dream state. And so astral travel is becoming conscious of existing in that dream state outside of the physical body.
and there is a distinction between uh, so in that dream state because uh, when we're talking about mental projections or perception of a reality astral reality I don't, yeah well, this this plane this I'm not sure if I'm still expressing it well but um is it sort of a way where if we have a mental projection in that dreaming state that body is able to or that consciousness is able to project like a almost like a dome of of uh, imagery around itself while simultaneously still occupying space or still being in this other dimension yeah to some degree i mean i think it's uh it's not absolute in that way it's not as cut and dried you know yeah. the the fluidity of consciousness and the level of projection um, is immense, I imagine. Mm. But the same thing we can see, you know, for, it's easier to perhaps perceive it or consider it from our physical, from a physical perspective. You know, we can be reasonably alert and aware of our surroundings and in the present moment. Mm. So our consciousness can be clear. Mm. So we're able to perceive through our senses the information that's coming from, from our environment. Mm. and we're aware of what's going on inside our psychology and it can be reasonably calm and peaceful and still and so we're just in a stable environment if we start to become uh, emotionally affected by a circumstance or an event or if we start to have negative thinking about a particular thing or we're just engaged in thinking about something quite intently then we lose the perception of the external reality sure so we could walk through a lovely park and be daydreaming and not see any of it. Yeah, yeah. So our senses are lost in that sense. Um, or we can be in a very negative state and that can affect our capacity. That, that, that emotional state projects onto our circumstance, our current circumstance, and we don't see the reality of, of that. Mm. Now, the thing is when the physical body and the vital body are not there, we exist only in that... Uh, subtler level of experience mm -hmm. and so when we dream consciously or unconsciously those projections become a reality for us mm. and so all we see is is that projection and so it, it um you know it takes some some practice to be able to develop or maintain a state where those those emotional and psychological states don't um obstruct or interfere with our capacity to perceive reality in, in that dimension. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and it must be way more extreme. Or the Yeah, okay. Yeah. So if we, you know, if we're, depending on, you know, our capacity to recall dreams and so on, but, you know, we can have experiences where something can just morph into something else. Our dreams are very fluid in that yeah. way because of a thought that we have or an emotion we experience. And so our, our psychological state, you know, very easily affects our experience there even just in a dream state but more so in, in conscious experiences I've come across uh, yeah, discussions and um, some learnings uh, in this area but essentially you know like um, I, I feel like I'm still teasing it out and one of the things that kind of interests me about these layers of reality is I kind of have this idea whether it's right or wrong that there's a healthy version of physical energetic 
emotional, mental and causal realities and that there are unhealthy versions of those realities. And um, I'm trying to work out, for example, when meditating, uh, I kind of uh, get my physical body stable and strong and then do some breathing exercises or something to get the energetic body quite stable and strong and um, then the astral body quite stable and strong and it seems to me that the astral body if we're going to talk about just the astral body it might be the the home of the emotions but it is not the emotions in its pure form or if it is the emotions it's a positive manifestation of the emotions. I, I'm not sure whether I'm expressing the question correctly. I'm, I'm interested in the quality and uh, because our emotions can be all over the place. And is that our astral body, you know, or is it potentially our astral body or is the, is the astral body, has it got a, a clarity and a, um, a purpose? If I get a sense of what you're saying, the um, and again, if we put that in uh, like a perspective of health and treatment that we're looking at, or in terms of spiritual practice, it's probably similar. Mm. But, um, you know, in Chinese medicine, they say there's two main causes or three causes of disease, but two main causes of disease. One is external, which are the climactic factors, and one is internal, which is the emotions. And so the emotions obstruct the flow of energy in an inappropriate way and so all all emotion then is considered uh to cause disease mm. from a chinese medical perspective because it obstructs the natural appropriate movement of energy in a given time so positive emotion uh similarly while it's positive can have a good effect but not necessarily a harmonious effect even if it's it could because it can be excessive and so really this is why you know in the we have this yin yang symbol and this uh, duality or polarity idea we can have positive and negative both of which are just realms of experience but ultimately what we want is appropriate and so in any given circumstance there's an appropriate emotional state that doesn't lead to imbalance that doesn't lead to disharmony inside of us and that's our capacity to place ourselves in that state and to discern that appropriate state is the difficult and tricky thing to do because, <clears throat> because we, can, we have internal responses to things that means we can have a thought about something that someone says which will generate an emotion which will influence our behavior that will obstruct the movement of chi in our body. Yeah, so Scott, what's the trick here? See, I, I'm going through a stage where I, I feel like I'm telling people that the trick is to identify with the observer state, which is talked about in meditation a bit. And that once you start to place yourself in the observer state, observing your physical self, observing your energetic self, observing your emotions and observing your thoughts... It's a little bit like having a treatment in that you are moving closer and closer and closer to yourself. 
and that the trick is that the observer is you. Yeah, which is a pickle because, you know, if we follow that line of thought, consciousness and who we are then becomes a, inevitably becomes an object for people. And so we see this in life, you know, people are searching for themselves and people are searching for happiness and people are searching for this or for that, whatever it happens to be. But you, you can't find yourself, you know, because you are yourself. You can't see your eyes with your eyes. Yeah. So the, the same sort of thing, everything that we can see as an object, we know is not us. This is the way that I've always appreciated understanding it is, you know, I can, sit, I can see you guys sitting here opposite me and I know that you're not me. You know, if we're talking at a relative level beyond, you know, universal oneness. But I know that you're not me. So I, I can also see my physical body. And I know, depending, you know, on the experiences that we have, I know that I'm not this physical body. Because I can cut off my arm and I'm still 100% me. Mm. Um, and then energetically we can see the same thing. But I can also observe an emotion. Most people identify with their emotions. Because it arises inside of us, we identify with it, we take it as ourselves, and so then there's no capacity for uh, separation. And so an emotion arises based upon a thought, which is based upon a belief, which relates to this picture or this identity that we have that we think we're supposed to be. And so an event arises which contradicts that, and we have a response. The degree of dissonance between reality and our expectation of reality is distortion and that distortion is emotion and that emotion as we experience it in ourselves is really just us trying to manipulate life to our expectation of reality and so how we go about doing that some people you know depending upon the amount of force that they have will engage anger which is the best way to achieve our own will mm. um, but we use our own will or some people will become sad, some people will just ruminate, some people will you know, do other things. But everyone will experience emotion when an event doesn't correspond to our expect expectation of life. Mm -hmm. And so the idea then is, is not to, to, to try and see that those three things are happening, that there is reality, there is our, our preconceived idea of reality, and the emotional response is telling us the nature of those two things. And so by the nature of the, of the emotion, we, we can start to perceive what it is that we think life should be and know that life isn't going that way. And then we have two choices. So is that an observer state? Well, yeah, yeah to some degree. Yeah. But as it, because most people don't, can't perceive that, they automatically identify with that emotion. Hmm. And most people want life to go the, the way they want it to go. And this is a difficulty that I've come up with. You say uh, labeling consciousness or creating, making consciousness an object. Because I was speaking to someone uh, recently and, and we were attempting to have a discussion and we were trying to define, you know, the basic terms of what we're talking about here. And consciousness being the, the missing factor for most, I guess, if you describe people as very materialist in terms of their philosophy. Uh, so your, your classic, you know, um, uber rational sort of type, scientific type of person. Um, now, without a def definition of this thing, consciousness, without a, an agreed way of discussing it, there was really no way for us to find a, 
a middle ground. We could we could kind of dance around concepts, but essentially our perspectives were just too far away from each other. Um, and so I was attempting to find a definition for consciousness, but then speaking to someone else, they suggested, well, that's part of the deal is that you you can't really define it. Like once you define it, then it's 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 not it's become something else. How how do you, how yeah, have you thought of any ways of approaching that like um, dilemma? I don't really see it as a, as a dilemma. Um, I mean, I think that the difficulty for, for science is they base things from a physical perspective and they see that consciousness arises out of um, matter, where most spiritual traditions and religious traditions see that consciousness and spirit or, and then soul is... Um, the precursor of matter and inhabits matter. The difficulty for science is that consciousness in that from that perspective is like a, a ghost in the room. You know they, they see the brain th- the three-dimensional brain and our neurology and and the endoc- endocrine functions as 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 simply the be-all and end-all of experience and that consciousness is just a byproduct of that movement, something which perceives that occurring to, which is, Right in a way, but um, they only look at things from a, th- a three-dimensional perspective. Mm. And so, you know, if, again, if we if we have this multi-layered or multi-dimensional perspective on it, and we we can see we have a physical body, this vital body, we have our psychology, which you know is all of our thoughts and emotions and biases and you know and so on. But there is something that perceives it. And coming back to this idea of objectifying consciousness. Um, we can ob- observe our psychology. So the very fact that I can see you guys and know that I'm separate from you, and then I can observe a thought, the fact that I can observe a thought means it's separate from me. It, it arises and occurs inside my mind or inside my psychology. But the fact that I can observe it means that there's two things there. There's the thought and then there's something observing it. Mm. And people try and observe or find their consciousness but consciousness is that which perceives Mm. so you can't ever see it so we can only develop uh, an understanding and an experience of conscious first of all by knowing what it isn't and then by knowing what it isn't enough we develop a feeling of what it is when consciousness is present and active Mm. because the consciousness can be asleep even if we're physically awake because we're hypnotized by things we're daydreaming and you know our psychology our psychology can just run and we daydream and so our consciousness is submerged in the subconscious and we're essentially asleep but physically awake and most people go through their lives that way they drive their cars like that they go to work like that they have relationships like that they make love like that they have arguments like that and they're not really consciously awake it's just subconscious processes based on pre-existing egoical hidden beliefs that manifest through a certain personality which give people a perspective of life that tells them to act and feel in a certain way and that's that's their life so consciousness is is the ability to observe and reflect well we still i mean yeah we we use the mind to reflect but we can have intuitive insight into things so, you know, I think also in, in a lot of meditative circles or 
conscious you know spiritual practice there's this idea that we shouldn't think but there's nothing wrong with thinking mm. um it's what we think about you know we can think profoundly about things mm. and we can think to some degree consciously you know uh, knowing that we're thinking and thinking intentionally not just daydreaming and not just thinking about negative things but we just think deeply about life and about our experience and about circumstance and try and you know understand at a conscious level what is the different realities that are going on here and one of my teachers you know says there's three realities to every event there's a physical reality you know the moment that we're experiencing here there's a psychological reality which is you know the psychological process that each of us is going through in this moment and then there's an esoteric reality there's an esoteric reason for this event that we may or may not and be able that, to discern. Just to, like, because uh, um, I'm kind of academically interested in what you're saying, the um, the psychology relates to the mind and the uh, astral level, and the uh, esoteric is relating to the causal level? And, and above. And above. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to perceive... That must be hard to get a grip on, eh? Oh, it is. It's <laughs> incredibly difficult. You know, and this is why... You know, with most spiritual practices, you said before, we start at the physical level. So whether that's with asana, um, whether that's with qigong practice, whatever level of practice we do, we organize our physical life and, you know, we start to become, um, you know, just a decent person. Mm. We organize our physical life, we do things well, we stop doing harm, you know, we have all of the various um, precepts and so on that different traditions have. Uh, and there's a deeper esoteric reason for those precepts, but at a physical level, we just start to create order in our life. Mm. And then slowly we start to move more interiorly. Because most people are externalized. Everything is based upon the external world for, for gratification, for verification. Everything is based in that. But slowly as we start to interiorize, you know, our, our, our psychological and our esoteric reality becomes more of a reality than the external world. And so... You know, to become aware of the, the physical environment is the beginning, and then slowly we start to become aware of our psychological reality or our psychological life, which is, you know, what influences most people. That we can be here, and, and this is a, um, an, an event, and someone could be in a certain state that means they can't enjoy or participate in this event because of their psychological reality mm. or because of certain preconceived ideas or egoical states it impacts on the reality of what we're experiencing and then slowly as that becomes more and more perceptive perceptible or perceived then slowly the esoteric reality becomes can start to be seen but it's yeah from my experience it's the it's the last one to be to be seen mm. and the, the most elusive and but it, it's a reality and it takes lifetimes like uh that's the really funny part of, uh, when i have conversations with certain people is that um there's this idea that i should be able to explain it <laughs> yeah. and um and this thing that i've been really uh, attempting to communicate more effectively in that there are experiential things that you have to experience like mm. that's just that, yeah that's a, that's all there is to it like you have to experience it if you don't experience it there's not a great deal of point discussing it unless you're planning on experiencing it um and yeah that i, I do find that a, a very um interesting thing for people to not accept uh that 
you know, was that there's that Shakespeare quote about, you know, heaven and earth. Then, you know, I, I don't know the quote, but I'm sure somebody out there does. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than I dreamt of in your philosophy. I've got a, a question without notice, I think. <laughs> uh, Scott and I have actually um, had conversations about this, and I think it'd be really good to put it on the podcast, some of the things that we've talked about and expand on them a little bit. And um, I'm just, I am interested in uh, talking about perhaps not experiencing uh, in a conscious manner um, astral travel. Um, You'd be better off experiencing it. Hey? <laughs> You'd be better off experiencing yeah, it. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, there are some obstacles to that. But nevertheless, if we if we, we move beyond me just for just a little moment, um, and I, I, I want to know um, what it feels like. Well, I think the first thing is just to dispel any misunderstandings or myths about it you know astral travel is something completely natural we do it every night we go to sleep Mm, astral travel is the separation of the consciousness and the psychology from the physical body and it's our dream state so conscious astral travel is simply becoming aware of that that state and experience um that you know the fact that we do that we do sleep and dream and that we can become conscious of it is the the nature of astral travel and slowly our capacity to explore and experience that dimension increases um at a more esoteric level you know we see that's the place where everyone goes to when they sleep every every night or whenever whenever it is that they sleep but it's also the place where um deceased people go like they if that's the realm that exists of our psychology then that that's what's described as, as limbo you know where where the deceased go okay so you can bump into so so this this idea um, where people kind of like and I've had people say that even during treatments that they um, rise above the table and they can look down on themselves on their physical form. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, but I mean, it's basically what we've been talking about. That if someone enters a, sense, a state of deep relaxation. And for all intents and purposes, they sleep, but not not the deep, you know, slumber that we know of at night time, mm. but just a deep level of relaxation and repose. Then the consciousness can can separate from the physical body, and so they can, it will, you know, they they leave their body, so to speak, and so they can perceive themselves. They can perceive the reality of that environment, but outside of their physical form. Yeah. So you're moving into what you call the uh, the psychology and the. Um emotions yeah into that area so is, is moving into a, an astral state an exploration of your own psychology or is it uh something else uh it can be both i mean in the astral plane we we, we will you know our psychology uh, immediately or intimately affects our experience but there is a reality to it so we can experience both explore inside of ourselves but also explore that deeper reality of life so uh, how is this in relation to a concept like remote viewing? Because um, the two experiences that I've had that felt like they were out-of-body experiences, um, the, my uh, immediate environment, the room that I was in, looked exactly the same as it did when I was awake and in this experience. So my understanding of it was that there is a way for that body or that consciousness to still perceive either 
the physical reality um, whilst outside the body, but or or that there was a a, a parallel uh, astral plane that was almost the same as this. Uh, where am I? I don't know. Where am I confusing myself there? Uh, I'm not. I'm not that familiar with remote viewing and what it describes, but the, um, you know, there's a certain the faculties or capacities of the consciousness that either we we have sleep and it's described that with astral travel or astral projection, the physical body does go to sleep and the consciousness separates from the physical body. Mm. But we can have, for example, a whether people that do remote viewing actually fall asleep and their consciousness actually leaves their body, or they still maintain or retain a level of physical lucidity but they can within that still have the capacity to perceive uh, objects at a distance consciously um, is just a cycle psychic faculty like clairvoyance i I imagine Mm. so they can perceive things that are not physically present which is clairvoyance Mm. and but they have some control over it so they can travel to a particular place and remotely view whatever it is that they want to view Mm. The difficulty with that is just the, again, the nature of our psychology that, um, you know, I saw in that, if you guys saw the men who stare at goats. Yeah, got the book over there. I yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it just shows how elusive or subjective those experiences can become. Mm. They're certainly, you know, they were certainly having conscious experience, but the subconscious was influencing what they were perceiving. Um, and you know that that's the difficulty what what is reality and what's a projection uh, and the fact that there's laws that govern you know what we can and will experience when we are out of our body um, the nature of our psychology that influences things it's um it's hard to say you know what's what's really true and objective and what's not but you know we can certainly say there's lots of different ways to interact and experience in that in that dimension or environment yeah so you've been kind of exploring this for a while so what's what's going on for you when you're interacting at that level in terms of dreams um dreams and out of body or astral experiences just becomes a a part of life you know every night i look forward to going to sleep Mm. because i know i'm you know it's the the nighttime isn't just sleep it's not just a part of my life that's unconscious to me it becomes a an important part of my life that whether it's dreams, whether it's unconscious experiences, whether it's conscious uh, out-of-body experiences, um, I can learn about myself and I can experience things and I can perceive things in myself that are, um, you know, that are obstacles for me or limiting me in some ways and, uh, or I can have experiences that show certain things that I need to do or to cultivate or, you know, where I am and what I need to overcome. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really important part of life. Something that you said before, um, and I want to know if you agree with this or if I'm on some kind of track, you were suggesting that ghosts or, or these, these things that are left behind, my take on it was that, do well, my question is, do these ghosts, are they still connected to the observer consciousness or are they like a stain almost, like a, a husk of this emotional body that is left behind and therefore somewhat disembodied from the rest of that person's aspect. Um, I only had limited experience in personally in terms of actually meeting dead people like yeah. in the in the astral, but theoretically, 
the same like we were talking about these different bodies so when we when we die obviously the physical body slowly disintegrates the vital body similarly slowly disintegrates it takes a bit longer than the physical body that's why some traditions think cremation is better because it just gets rid of the body and the physic more so the vital body becomes an attraction for the personality which is what most people know as ghosts uh, okay. yeah. so and then distinct of that we have the the psyche of the person all of the various egos that they have and then the consciousness mm. so most people because most people live life with their consciousness asleep when they die the consciousness is just profoundly asleep inside this psychology and it exists in that dimension so people still exist there but they just go about their day um their life completely unaware that they're dead and you know still going about their day-to-day life so the physical and vital body disintegrates the personality still exists and slowly disintegrates and then the, the essence of the person um, at some point which will you know reincorporate in another body at an appropriate time is just usually asleep in the subconscious uh, and so that the personality that you described that it's that's still just going about itself not understanding that it's dead that over time disintegrates. disintegrates and there seems to be certain rituals or uh uh, and when I use the word ritual, I would say like consciousness amplifying physical acts or, or whatever you want, however you want to describe it, that will um, prolong that process or change that process in certain ways. Some people with strong personalities, their, their personality can exist a long time after death. And, you know, maybe it's the, whether it's the personality or the subconscious of people, that's what a lot of people in mediumship contact. <sighs> And yet, you know, also you hear in, you know, traditions like Tibet or Chinese Buddhism and so on, that they, they worship these particular masters yeah. who are now reincorporated in another physical body. And that, that being that they're worshipping is, is dead. Yeah, okay. Um, hmm, that's interesting. Cause there's, so there's a kind of a, a hollowness to it in one aspect because there's this missing aspect of them but essentially the that the rest of them is still there so that relationship is still functional in certain ways um i remember hearing uh i was a kung fu practitioner suggesting that there was a um the is it microcosmic orbit i believe and um again i might be getting this completely wrong my memory is not the greatest but he was suggesting that there was some kind of uh, ball or some kind of energy that if you were able to circulate it through your body five times um then your personality would survive after death and you would you would continue on so now this makes me wonder if um if there's a difference between that practice and what normally happens, or if this practice was just a, a, a description of what's going to happen anyway, and the, the, the circulating thing of it really didn't have much to do with this, with this other thing. I'm not sure, to be honest. The, um, I mean, I think there's different traditions have developed different practices to become conscious of those transitions, like the bardo states of the Tibetans and so on. Mm. <clears throat> and then they develop practices that they can interact or intervene at various levels of those of those processes so i'm not sure what he's what he's describing in that in Mm. sense of transferring the ball around the body but 
this is hearsay from hearsay from hearsay, so it's pretty hard to analyze it really. But yeah, really interesting. That 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 really just helps explain so much. Um, and, and what I really find interesting about this current time that we're living in is that it does seem like um, because of the uh, unveiling or the um, expanding of certain philosophies that were held quite uh, tight for many centuries, thousands of years, uh, this we're, we're really able to see um, what's consistent through these different traditions and um, really able to see where a lot of people who say they claim to be psychic or say claim, yeah, their, their, their experiences that they are psychic and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, these understandings will hopefully really help a lot of people because there'll be a, a, a broader framework of what what's actually going on that doesn't contradict any of them, really. It refines them and it, and it kind of cleans up some of the misconceptions, uh, but they're all able to continue to practice. Yeah, I, mean, I think it would be... <clears throat> it would f- fundamentally change society if we had a lack of fear of death and an understanding, a deeper understanding of what life is and, and what we are actually comprised of as human beings. Um, you know, again, which is beautiful in the, the Chinese medical and Taoist tradition, this idea of the three treasures. You know, that we have this, this treasure inside of us that we have to conserve and, and transmute. Um, you know, we see uh, our sexual energy our vital energy, uh, our consciousness are possessions, they're, they're treasures that we have. And our life today just squanders them. You know, everything is externalized, everything. Our psychology is externalized, our sexual energy is externalized, and everything is just wasted and distorted. And, you know, to have a society where there's a deep understanding of what we are as human beings and the energies that actually exist within us and the things that exist beyond us uh, and to be able to live a life that that supports that would be amazing. Uh, I'm optimistic but realistic and I, I, can't, I can't see it happening. But, you know, it would be beautiful if it did. It would really change. You know, if if everyone had an understanding of what they are as a human being and the deep... Um, you know, integration of us as human beings, then war would be impossible. Exploitation, exploitation would be impossible. So there would be, you know, there would need to be some fundamental shifts for that to take place, but it would take compromise. Yeah, well, I'm uh, optimistic and perhaps even a little bit more naive at the moment, so I can I can hold the flame for <laughs> sooner than later. <laughs> you know, I mean, I see the same thing in... Um, you know, in the clinical setting is the, it can soon become quite discernible what, what's going on for someone and what, what is the foundation or what's establishing this, um, this imbalance or this disease or this suffering or pain, whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. you know, at a physical level in terms of the activities and the, the things that they engage in and the things that could be creating biases in their system, but also then at a psychological level, the things that deeper, at a more deeper level are creating this imbalance and supporting it and sustaining it. And some people just aren't willing to sacrifice it. They're, they will they will live with pain because they don't want to sacrifice their desires. It's much easier, yeah. Um, can I um, dispel my own fears of death 
<laughs> a small task indeed. <laughs> but uh, I, I was interested in what you were saying before, and I've heard various dissertations and uh, variations on it. But um, I kind of um, uh, the 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 body. Uh, slowly breaks down and dies and as does the vital body and then there's uh, the immediate experience after death of being in your psychology and um, strong personalities can be there for a long time and and is, is am I right in saying that's what a a, a ghost is yes yeah, really, yeah yeah and that can take some time to break down mm. and um, time is kind of like a little bit wavery in this yeah. existence anyway um so when it breaks down i was i was just wanting to know what was next well the personality is distinct again i mean as i said i've only had limited experience with it so this is more the, the theoretical description but um the personality is distinct of the essence and so the personality will still exist from a previous existence there might be a ghost there and the essence of that person has already taken a new form right okay so it's it's you know it's like an old pair of clothing we've just discarded and it's around it's around so you can i haven't had that experience but i know people that have met previous personalities of the, their own yeah yeah oh, is that's that, cool. that, that is that like a past life experience it would be a past life experience because you're seeing the personality of your previous existence mm. yeah. or a previous existence. And future wow. existences. Uh, I think the, f the future less so, more, you know, more the past. Right, yeah. okay. Well, so time, <laughs> uh, that, that really puts a, a solid stamp on time as a force, or mm. as a factor. Um, yeah, like, do you think, I mean, you obviously think about time a fair bit because you've, You've looked into Chinese astrology yeah. quite a bit. Um, how does that relate? Because I have heard a lot of these ideas of, of that it isn't linear, that it, there is a kind of uh, that we can experience the future now and that kind of thing. What's yeah. Your... Well, yeah. In terms of the dimensions that we spoke of, t time relates to the fourth dimension, which relates to the vital body. And so when we go into the, the fifth, which is related to the astral body or above, we go into eternity which is beyond time. And eternity then isn't just a, a straight line in, a, in an infinite direction. Eternity, I mean, it's, it's hard to describe, even it's hard to even comprehend, mm. but it's, it's the present moment in all of existence. So it's not, inf eternity isn't just an infinite period of time, it's all time now. Yeah, and the brain breaks. And... Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not something for the mind to understand, and that, yeah. that's only, you know, I only I, I have so much. Oh, it's such a limited concept of it, but that's the, the concept that's described. And um, so, time conditions our physical dimension, but there, we can go beyond time. And so, just to see if we have dispelled the fear of death. <laughs> uh, so, if my understanding is correct, what we're suggesting is that. If consciousness is the ability to perceive and observe this experience, then even though your personality continues on, that essence has has left, has gone somewhere else. So you won't, the you that is actually you, won't be experiencing the personality that is left in this state. 
Yeah, that, that's right. I think in terms of actually dispelling the fear of death is um, is not so much to try and console ourselves with an idea of eternal life in that sense, but to to deeply dispel the fear of death is to understand what death is and to understand why we fear it because we you know we we fear the loss of what we think we are and that's who we're identified with and the things that we have and so we fear losing them but if we know that you know we're not fundamentally this identity and we're not these possessions that we have and we're not this position that we hold in society and we're not this position that we hold in a particular family that we just we play a role and we we are an individual and we have to take on those things to exist in the world but they don't fundamentally um, define who we are then letting go of them is a lot easier you know that it's it's fine and then slowly that deeper aspect to death because death has many forms will will, will open up for us um, so more I think rather than trying to look at the future in that sense of death it's more you know how we live mm. um that death happens all the time you know the seasons change things die things come and go from our life and those attachments that we have we can learn to just um consciously let go of them and appreciate them for what they are and then and then that's it our life is more uh we, we live more because mm. life and death are exactly the same you know they're, they're twin twin brother and sister in that way and we to understand death we have to understand life and to understand life we we have to understand death in the in that bigger picture and there's nothing to be afraid of how is that going for you oh it's going great i, I i'm 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 thinking of now now I'm, i've got to the essence i want to know the layers of the essence <laughs> Yeah, well, it's... And the, the realm. <laughs> so I'm pretty out there at the moment. Yeah, sorry? That's why it takes lifetimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay, well, we've reached the limit of today. Uh, thank you so much, Scott. That was, yeah, wonderful. I, yeah, I'm really, really happy that we got a chance to do this. Um, and thank you also, Scott. It was so wonderful to have you again here. Yeah, thanks, Link. Thanks, Scott. Great. Mm. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll continue again via non-local communication uh, in the future. (laughs) Blessed Sister, Holy Mother, Spirit of the Fountain, Spirit of the Garden, writes T.S. Eliot, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still, even among these rocks. Yes, there are a lot of troubles and sorrows in the world, but there is some other greater force that is in you, that was born in you, that sustains you, that wants to awaken in you. Mark Morford who writes, stop thinking the global crisis is all there is and realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head and sigh and just throw in the karmic towel 
and realize that this is the perfect moment to change the energy to re-envision a re-enchantment of the world. To step right up and crank your personal volume up right when it all seems dark, most dark, and bitter and offensive and acrimonious and conflicted and bilious, here's your opening. Remember mystery and finally believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell, a resistance, a seemingly small but actually very, very large, impending transformative shift, the beginning of something important and potent and unstoppable. And once again, that was Mr. Jack Cornfield. If you'd like to hear more of his talks and presentations, I recommend the podcast, The Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour, which you can find at the Be Here Now Network, which is at BeHereNowNetwork.com. I also recommend checking out Krishna Das and Tara Brak via the same website as they are two excellent speakers as well. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, this next part has the mower in the background. It lasts for a few minutes, but it does clear up in the second section, so you won't have to put up with it for too long. Um, you speak about multiple existences. Uh, so, one thought from that would be the idea of like reincarnation, uh, so multiple lives. But then uh, there's also this idea of uh, the physical body, the energetic body, the astral body. And so, when I talk to people about or I think about the soul. Um, in some philosophies, it's the soul just seems to be this one unit. Like it, it, it I don't think. Um, well, I think there are people out there who don't really consider the different layers or sheaths of this idea of a soul. Um, but I guess Chinese medicine and gnosis have different takes on this. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um. In terms of Chinese medicine, it's perhaps a slightly different perspective. And then Gnosis has a similar take on it, but again, slightly, um, the terminology that's used is quite different. But, you know, I think we can say, and not to be controversial, but we don't actually have a soul. Um, we have the potential for soul, but don't actually have one yet. And so if we look at this idea of, as you mentioned, we've got a physical body, a vital body, you know, in terms of acupuncture, it's the vital body that we that we interact with. Then we have an astral body, a mental body, and a causal body. The causal body um, is said to be the expression of the human soul. And for most people, most human beings, as we exist, we have a fraction of that um, human soul available to us because of, as I mentioned before, this idea we have this um, inherent spirit or soul as it's described in the, the primordial shen as it's described in chinese medicine but because of the conditioning that we have um, we forget we don't have contact with we don't have the capacity to experience to incarnate to manifest that deeper aspect of the shen because of because of this conditioning because of our identity because of the <clears throat> various um conditioning that we have, the blockages in our system, everything prevents the manifestation of that, that deeper aspect of ourselves. And so spiritual practice then is, is undoing all of that conditioning so that that inherent soul or Shen consciousness can manifest through us.
we were just a little bit disrupted by a lawnmower or a whippersnipper. But the question being the idea of uh, different layers or sheaths of the soul. So uh, from yeah, from Chinese medicine, gnosis, what, what, what the takes are on that yeah. kind of idea. So in um, as I was alluding to before with this idea of the inherent or the primordial soul and the, um, the acquired soul, we don't have access to the primordial shen or the soul in that sense. So... Um, in terms of the sheaths that you mentioned, which is you know mostly a, a theosophical expression, which comes out of the um, I think it's the Hindu description. So we have a physical body, a vital body, an astral body, mental body, and then a causal body. There's bodies that exist beyond that, but in terms of the human soul, it relates to the to the causal body. And so the um, the capacity for free will or the capacity for the the human soul to express and manifest through us is impaired by all of that conditioning. So you imagine, again, this idea of free will, we, we don't really have free will um, because the will that we have, will is, is a force, it's a capacity of consciousness and our consciousness is conditioned and so it's not free. Mm. Free will is the capacity to do anything at any time and we don't have that capacity because we're conditioned. So in terms of the soul, if we see it in that regard, um, all of the physical, uh, vital, emotional and mental uh, blockages and conditionings that we have prevent the manifestation or the experience of us internally or experientially of the soul itself. Mm. So, the, you know, the soul and the will is a, is a force. Uh, it's an inherent characteristic that exists in everyone. But... Looking again at this, this this contrast between the primordial and the acquired mind or shen or soul as it's described in Chinese medicine, um, because of our misperception of who we think we are, it limits our capacity to allow um, the experience on and the integration of that primordial aspect of ourselves. So each of us has this this you know this inherent spiritual aspect. But because we think we are this body and we're convinced that we have this particular identity and that identity is based around our name and the things that we've acquired in this lifetime, the various languages and skills and um, jobs and things and possessions that we've acquired, that's, that's who and what we identify with. Mm. But that is that's completely not opposed to but separate from what we are essentially. And so, uh, whilst the soul and that or that um, that primordial aspect exists, the wisdom, uh, virtues, and values of it are un unattainable for us. Because again, because of that conditioning. So, in that sense, then the spiritual practice is being able to deobstruct and unidentify with the temporal and identify and experience and contact the atemporal or the, the permanent. And so this, you know, th this pre-heavenly or primordial Shen that's described in Chinese medicine or Taoism, um, you know, the essence and the being as it's described in Gnosis is, is really what we are as human beings. But we have to develop a personality. It's, it's, it's fundamental as a means of expression mm. in life as we grow up and develop. But, you know, spiritual practice is really understanding who and what we are and not confusing who we are with, with what we do. That 
you know, for myself, um, I, have, I've, I have a certain name, I have a position in society, I'm married, I have a, pat- a particular job, but that has absolutely nothing to do with who I am as, as a being. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, this is such a, this is why Taoism for me is such a, a marvelous practice because it's embodied and it's natural and it's description of, of what a human being is uh, at an intimate and a broad level really gives people a, a deep perspective and a capacity to experience something beyond what we're just conditioned to believe in today's society. You know, most people, if, they, if you ask them who they are, they'll tell you the things that they possess. That's, that's not who they are. And, you know, to, again, this is why I think it's important um, in the context of treatment as well, is to start to get people in contact with who they are and not just their disease or their symptoms or their problems or their obstacles or the things that they think that they value in life and the things that they think they have to work to and for and um, that cause them suffering. You know, I think that's... um, it's a very difficult part of, of clinical practice is, is that level of interaction. And I, I tend to be a little hands-off in that regard uh, or passive in as much as I just let people talk and I'm happy to listen and just receive what people say and, you know, trust, again, in the, that the process of the treatment will support or enable someone to make those shifts. But, um, you know, really everyone has a, a story that um, they're convinced of and they have that that conditioning that causes them suffering and supports or not supports, but maintains the, the conditions um, that, that means that they will have physical illness, they will have emotional suffering because they feel that they have to do things. You know, there's people that feel like they have to work 60 hours, 70 hours a week. And then there's no free will there. They think they have to do it. But the question is, why do they why do they have to do it? And that's not something I can tell someone as a practitioner. It's not something that anyone can tell them. They have to understand that in themselves. There's a subconscious drive um, that impels them to do it. You know, everyone, and this is the the basis of the personality, which is uh, a means or an expression of deeper subconscious states or the ego. You know, we develop this personality and the personality is a structure that we form uh, in the formative part of our life that creates a picture in our mind of who and what we have to be to be successful and to be accepted and thought of as a good person. You know, for the average normal person. Obviously, we've got psychological imbalances in there. But, you know, as we grow up and we interact with our family members and our siblings and then we start to go to school and we have friends, each of us creates, it seems, this this picture or this identity of the optimal person that we think that we should be. And we then, based on that picture, create a set of behaviours and ways of being that enable that to to come into being, Mm. manipulative or otherwise. But we know that this is the type of person that we think we should be so that we're successful or we're accepted, and then we create these behaviours that will enable that to happen. Mostly or invariably, all of this is subconscious. And that's what causes us suffering because that picture or that identity that we we have created is in stark contrast to who we are essentially as as a human being. And it's it's inevitable and it's necessary that we create 
this this personality or this picture, but uh, it limits us and it limits our development because it's it's not who we are. So as as a human being, we have as an individual, we have certain talents and certain skills and certain qualities and certain virtues and values that we have to allow the expression of, mm. which can be. Um, seriously obstructed by this personality that we have mm. and often you see this you know people that that wanted to be to do something in their life they wanted to be i don't know a practitioner mm. but yet their family convinced them that they should study law or they should study engineering because it's safer because it's better because you'll be more successful because you'll have more money because you'll be more accepted in society and they'll think well of you but mm. we compromise ourselves as as individuals to please other people. Now, I'm not saying in that that we should just be anarchists and do whatever we like, but mm. that, you know, really to, to start to get a sense of who we are as an individual, what our skills are, um, what what we inherently should be doing with our lives, who we are as a person, and how we can just live in integrity with that. And again, not that we become stubborn and uncompromising, you know, that's it's a different aspect, but that, just that we have integrity, that we realise... You know, what what our vocation is, what our capacity is, um, who we are as a person and what, what we're trying to achieve and do with our life. Not just to live a, a superficial life, whether it's successful or not. Mm. Um, because that, that contrast creates conflict. When deep inside of ourselves we feel and know that we should be doing something and we don't, for, for, for whatever reason, because our parents won't accept us or... We want to be seen to be a certain thing in the eyes of other people. And, you know, that inner conflict creates a serious energetic obstruction or blockage mm. and um, creates a lot of emotional suffering for people and invariably can create physical disease. Mm. Um, so I think, again, in, in, in terms of clinical treatment, not that I in any way go near that because I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor, but I have that understanding in myself that, you know, people have this conflict in them. Mm. And I think through the process of treatment, they can get in touch with uh, a deeper sense of who they are. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to make dras drastic changes, that they have to change their job and they have to leave their partner and they have to abandon their kids and, you know, they have to go and do something else. But that, you know, they, they just feel in themselves that they can make subtle changes and their life will significantly change. You know they'll be significantly happier or they'll be they'll be more vital or you know some of the the things that really uh really draw on their energy will, will, will go well that's the end of part two of our interview with scott billings if you'd like to hear more from scott i recommend listening to his appearances on gnostic waves radio my personal favourite being a two-part episode where he explored the concept of entropy and how it relates to the spiritual path. It's really amazing stuff. These episodes can be found at GnosticWaves.com. I also have provided direct links to each Gnostic Waves episode that Scott appears in in the show notes for this Inkwell episode. So you can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at www.inkalot.net slash inkwell. 
Scott and his wife have recently moved to Glasgow in Scotland, and he is now practicing at Woodland Herbs, which is located at 100 Woodlands Road in Glasgow. If you're in Scotland and would like to make an appointment, you can contact the clinic by phone on 014-156-431-84 or via email, which is inquiries at woodlandherbs.co.uk. Scott also has his own website, which can be found at www.japanese-acupuncture.net which if you're listening to this episode in a few years time, I mean, I'm releasing this in 2016, uh, that might be the best way to contact him as who knows where he'll be living by then. And as for our co-host, Scott Brisbane, Scott's drew yoga classes on weekly at the Shiatsu College. So for more information on making an appointment with Scott, you can email me at shiatsulink at gmail.com. That's S-H-I-A-T-S-U-L-I-N-K at gmail.com. Or you can contact the Australian Shiatsu College on 039387-1161. If you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself, please get in contact. Or if you know a teacher or a practitioner that you think would be a really interesting guest, uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class but perhaps never got the chance to, uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. So keep checking out www.inkalot.net for more episodes. And remember, you can subscribe via iTunes or a podcast app from an Android phone. My preference is Podcast Addict. I think it's a great app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can give us a rating on iTunes. That's always very helpful. Or you can just promote the show via Facebook or any other social media, or just put them on a USB and hand them to a friend. However you like, just spread the word. If you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie who run the college are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and, and show you around the space. It's, it's uh, a really beautiful building and there's something about the, the energy of the place that's it's quite calming and yeah, nurturing and, and just lovely. You'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit www.inkalot.net for more episodes. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon.